listening father God let your holy words just penetrate Lord deep father God and provide the healing that you so anxiously want to give father God help us open up and receive your love your healing your grace and mercy Lord we thank you for being the great I am have your way bless your name in the name of Jesus amen
Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, good morning to everybody watching. Uh, such a great time of worship. If you ever want to like instantly feel better, put on some worship and praise music and then just sing your heart out. <laughs> uh, remember to stay connected if you are in this place or if you are um, watching with your families. Stay connected in this time of, just in a time of world where everybody's being separated and secluded and um, keeping to their own. Remember to give a call, give a text. If you need anything whatsoever, make sure that you jump into the app and you can put a prayer request. We have a prayer team waiting uh, to pray for things and willing and available to pray for you, your family, your health, uh, whoever you may know of maybe dealing with COVID or just in this time of, of confusion. I'm gonna go ahead and take this morning's tithes and offerings. And we just wanna first and foremost, always, always thank those who are faithful, consistently faithful in their giving unto the Lord. It does not go to Pastor Vaughn and I, it does not go to our, our rent, it goes to the church and we are able to continue to open doors and provide for people who need healing for these doors to be open for people to find safety restoration redemption reconciliation everything the lord does amen amen um i was reading in the scripture and i thought it was just so amazing when something clicked to me um these are the pharisees and the sadducees questioning jesus which is usually what the religious do we get to this place and we start questioning jesus we're like, okay, did you really say that? Is this really true? How is that gonna happen? Show me more. We need details, we need timelines. So it's usually the religious, and let's not look into the scriptures as if the religious is not us. Because a lot of times we can be the religious who need, question, who need our uh, questions answered right on the spot. And if we don't get answers or anything that we're seeking for, we tend to doubt. We tend to question our Lord and Savior. So um, in, this is in Luke 20, chapter 22, chapter 21, I'm sorry. It says, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality. That means he does not care if you're rich, if you're poor, where you've come from, if you, if you live in a shack or if you live in a mansion, if you're a physician at St. Jude or if you're a homeless, it does not matter. He shows no partiality. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And verse 23 says, he saw right through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it Caesar's they replied so verse 25 he says he said to them then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's now the next question that should arise from us is so what image is on me he says what image is on money and he says it's Caesar's it's Benjamin Franklin. It's presidents, right? So you, you pour it right back into them, right? You give it right back into them. 
Now the next question we should be asking and, and seeking is, so then what image is on me? If you know what image has been stamped on you, is you, it's God. In the beginning, God says he made man and women in his image. That means this morning, you are giving back into things financially to, to move this, this kingdom, his kingdom, to advance it into the future, to take it and push it forward. But you must go too. Don't just drop a dollar. Don't just sign the check. Or, and don't just like, here, I've done my duty. It's not a duty. It's you and your money pushing everything forward into your family, into your future marriage, into your children, your grandchildren. It seems so far away, but it's coming. Unless the Lord comes back, it's coming. So remember that. Remember to not only put the dollar in there or um, pay your tithes faithfully in order to keep this, but you go with your tithe. You go with it. You're not giving anything to, to anybody. It's you. You are releasing yourself. You are placing no restrictions, no conditions on God. I go with, my, I go with, the, with the finances. I go with the church. I am invested. Don't think of it as you're paying anything. You guys are, you and I are going with it. We don't just drop it in there just to just to say we've done something and we check it off of our list as if it's another bill it's not another bill in proverbs uh, 27 verse 19 it says as a face is reflected in water so the heart reflects the real person again it's your image that is releasing this finances and let's look in the mirror let's see what's reflecting if you have any questions about tithes and offerings, ask somebody. But take it to the mirror. Take it to the mirror first. And do you look like this? Is your reflection withholding? Or is your reflection surrender? God can see your heart. But you check out your own self. You, you make sure that you're on point and that you are fully surrendered. That you are following what you are putting into that into the basket and into the online and all of that. And here's why. Proverbs 28. Proverbs is full of wisdom. 28, 25, it says, because greed causes fighting, but trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. So hand it over. It's not for any other reason, but for your benefit, for your prosperity. For your goodness, look in that mirror and check out what, what is reflecting off of that. Is it Jesus? Is it the image of him that says release and surrender? Or is our reflection holding and nervous and scared? And I don't know if I'm going to make it this month if I, if I do tithe 10%. Trusting in the Lord leads to prosperity. And here's a quote that I found so amazing. It says, what if your simple job is setting the miraculous kingdom-sized work for generations to come? It's a simple act, but you are setting up the miraculous kingdom-sized work for generations to come. Not for next month, 
not for two months from now, not even for the next year, generations to come. Such a simple act we tend to look over, we tend to get frustrated about, but it is a miraculous setting up kingdom size work. So don't be afraid. The, the essential thing that our Lord always tries to teach us, the essential thing in discipleship between us and Christ is abandonment. Don't hold on. Don't withhold. God's got you. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. Whether you are suffering or in his glory, he's got you either way. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for everything you've done already. We thank you for the plans that you have. You're such a, a mighty engineer with a huge roll of plans, and you long to just roll it out and show us what we can partner with, what we can work with, um, how we can participate. We love you in this place. We pray that every dollar, every penny, everything that comes in, Lord, may you multiply the dollars, Lord, for your kingdom size work, your miraculous kingdom size work. And for the person letting it go, set their hearts free, set my heart free. Let me look in the mirror and be um, so excited for the change, so excited that you have removed pride and ego and self-reliance. We will trust in you, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome up Pastor Vaughn. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I see uh, more faces here in the building today. It seems like every week, amen, more and more folks coming back. We, uh, we're happy to see you here in the building doing your social distancing. Uh, also, everybody who's uh, part of the church and still joining online, uh, we're grateful for you guys. And uh, like Mary said, we want to stay connected and uh, take your time, be patient. Uh, the church isn't going anywhere. Somebody say amen. Amen. It, uh, the building will still be here when you decide to come back, and we want you guys to be healthy. We want the people who are here to be healthy, and we recognize some of the things that are going on in the country in regards to uh, COVID, um, with the numbers going back up. So let's just stay prayed up. Let's stay vigilant, and uh, let's trust God. Amen? amen. So I've enjoyed being able to listen the last two weeks. Um, uh, without being the one up here preaching, we had Pastor Steve from Living Hope two weeks ago, gave us a great message, inspiring and, and spirit-filled. And then uh, last week I got to hear one of my favorite preachers, Mary, uh, share on Father's Day. So as a father, to be able to sit there and listen, and you can even tell as she got up here and helped to lead us with the team in worship, and then she shared to receive our tithe and offering. I think she's making a move on the, on the pulpit. I'm going to be down more often. She's going to be up more often, but uh, it was a blessing. So this morning, I'm going to share a message titled Full Grown. I'm excited as usual to see what God has in store for us. But before I get into that, I, I just want to say that uh, these last couple of days and specifically even this morning, I was thinking about how much I love the church, how much I love church, coming to church. I was reminded this week uh, uh, several different times some of the reasons why and one of them is just the simplicity of the plan of God 
it's such a simple plan. Thank you, sis. Such a simple plan to, uh, to save, such a simple plan to change and to transform lives. And uh, it was just needed this week to remember why this thing that we do, this God that we serve, why it's so important. This morning before church, we were, we were pulling into the parking lot and uh, we saw a bunch of people across the, the street here at the park. And so we got into church and then me and one of the, the sisters here from the church, one of the brothers, we grabbed some flyers and we went across there and we started talking to people, uh, talking about Jesus, inviting them to church. And, uh, and for me, it was just a good reminder of, of what it's really all about. There's so many things going on right now. And uh, even as we come to church and we do church and we're trying to stream and we're trying to keep our distance, sometimes we can forget uh, what it is that God is trying to do. And for me, this was just such a good week of being reminded what he is doing, what he is trying to do in our lives. And even uh, before we have a service, what he's willing to do across the street out of a park. And uh, I think that's going to go hand in hand with what I want to share to you guys about being full grown. Say full grown. Say full grown. grown. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being who you are, Lord. We thank you that you give us, uh, as we heard, an opportunity to come in to worship you, to fellowship, Lord God, with one another, Lord, to continue to grow. You say that we are growing, that we are maturing, Lord, that you are changing us and transforming us on a moment by moment basis, Lord God. We ask that you would just continue that this morning, Lord, that your word would be alive and powerful as you say it is, Lord God, as we've seen it and we can testify that it is, Lord, that you would just continue that work in each and every heart here in this place, Lord God, each and every one that may be watching or listening, Lord God, not only in this moment, Lord, but your word, Lord, it does not return back uh, void, Lord. It accomplishes that for which it's sent out to do, Lord God. It's timeless and it's eternal, Lord. So we just pray your blessing upon this, this message this morning, Lord God. Would you have your way with my heart and with my mind and with my mouth, Lord God, that I would speak the things that you would have me to speak, Lord God, that you would accomplish what you want to in your, your son's lives and in your daughter's lives here in this place, Lord God. We thank you. We worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 It's all right. We can clap. It's not for me. It's for Jesus. All right. People don't know the, the church etiquette anymore. Are we allowed to clap? Are we allowed to talk? I almost passed out during worship with this mask on. I was singing my heart out, and I was like, oh, Lord, is, is that the spirit, or am I just breathing in my own stuff right now? So good. Man, I need worship. That's, that's the last thing I wanted to say before I get into full grown here, is that I was thinking about uh, those that are missing worship. So if you're, if you're not here in the building and you're watching, uh, man, I hope that you're singing. I hope you're lifting your hands. I hope you're shouting out. Uh, one of the things that that I think a lot of people are missing and, and are maybe struggling to find is worship. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing like being able to go into a place to hear people singing unto the Lord and to be able to join in on that and to sing out loud. And if you haven't done that for weeks and for months, um, even, even believers that love to come and worship but are struggling to find that at home, man, we're missing something. We gotta, we gotta find that. We need to grasp that. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so full grown, full grown. We're going to start with full-grown sin, and we'll get to, by the end of the message, full-grown men and full-grown women, but we're going to start with full-grown sin. James chapter 1, verse 15. James chapter 1, verse 15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. Say full-grown. Full-grown. 
So what we're going to do, we're going to look at a few things here, and we're going to watch how sin grows. We're going to watch how it goes through oppression, possession, and depression. So number one this morning is oppression. Oppression is defined in uh, Webster's Dictionary as unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. That's oppression, what it means to be oppressed. Unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. So oppression is one of the most demoralizing experiences and feelings that people can go through. I remember uh, as a kid, I was growing up and I had a big brother. He was four years older than me and uh, he was always bigger and stronger. He was like average size and maybe even a little bit big when we were kids. And I was a runt. I was smaller than everybody. Definitely um, much smaller and weaker than he was. And he would all often exercise his authority and power over me with cruelty. I think there's some of that maybe in, in a lot of relationships with kids and, and big brothers and little brothers, big sisters, little sisters. But my experience, to be honest with you, I think was a little bit extreme. He would, he would uh, oftentimes pin me down, right? I mean, brothers fight, brothers wrestle, but he would pin me down and I can, I can picture it and feel it like it was yesterday. And he would sit with both of his knees on top of both of my arms. And then he would do what we called back then, it was called Chinese torture. And he would take his knuckles and he'd rub it in the center of my chest until I'd cry. And then I'd literally pee on myself. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if that's too much for you, you ain't going to make it today. <laughs> so he would do that to me and I'd be, I'd be crying, I'd be wet. It was terrible. I remember he'd often beat me up till, at least until I cried, but often until I would bleed or both. Right? I'd be crying, I'd be bloody before he would, uh, before he would stop. And I remember being so angry, right? I remember being so afraid all the time when, uh, when I could see him, you know, kind of coming after me, whether I did something or, or didn't do something. I remember the thoughts that would come into my mind of things that I wanted to do and wish that I could do. And I also remember the sadness, right? And being heartbroken sometimes afterwards, just by myself crying about it, you know? And uh, I learned a few things about oppression through those experiences as a kid. Um, I learned that every now and then I would stretch the truth, also known as lie, in order for someone that had authority over him to make him feel for just a moment what I felt all the time. So maybe I would stretch the truth and tell my parents this or tell them that just so for a moment he could see what it feels like for those with authority or power over him to treat him um, cruelly. I learned that uh, every now and then I would, I would take a sucker punch at him, knowing that I was going to pay for it, right? But it was in my mind, I said, for just a moment, I want him to see what it feels like to be in pain and to be hurt when not expecting it or not, not deserving it. And it was worth it in those moments to take a sucker punch, even though I knew that a few minutes later, I'd be the one back on the ground crying and bleeding. I learned that every now and then I would steal from him. I'd take things like his clothes or his CDs or his music. Um, and again, I knew that I would pay for it later, uh, but it was worth it in those moments because it's the only, only thing that I could do. I would steal from him, I'd take his stuff. I'd wear his cross colors to school. <laughs> like I said, he was big, I was small, I'd get in trouble because we had a rule that you couldn't wear shorts past your knees. They were like down to my ankle because they were his. But the point was, I would, I would take these things from him, I would steal from him anything to get him for just a moment to see what it felt like to be me, to have 
no power, no authority, no control. See what it felt like to be taken advantage of. So what's the point? Oppression is not just the sin of the oppressor, but it's also capable of changing the character of the oppressed. It's not just about the sin of the oppressor. Oppression changes the character of those who are oppressed. When you feel oppression and powerlessness and hopelessness, I know for me it made me a liar, it made me a thief, and it made me abusive, which were not who I was before I was enduring this oppression. I was no angel, I was no saint, but it changed my character living in that kind of oppression. So what is oppression? In many ways, it's about being in a position. Say position. Position. Say place. place. So picture yourself in a position, picture yourself in a place that you know will not change no matter how hard you work or how hard you try. He was always going to be four years older than me. He was always going to be bigger than me. He was always going to be stronger than me. When you wake up under that kind of oppression, knowing no matter what I do, it's not going to change. Oppression is very hard to deal with. I want to read from Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 8. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of services in the field. All, the, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other Pois. And he said, Why, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he had provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Stop there, verse 22. So Egypt at the time is the strongest and most powerful nation on the planet, and they set up a system where the Hebrews were oppressed and enslaved, forced to build Egyptian kingdoms and economies. On top of that, Pharaoh knew that there was something about men, something about fathers, something about homes, and something about families 
So he charged the delivery nurses to kill the male children of the Hebrews, to destroy not only families and homes in the moment, but to destroy future generations of families and homes. This is oppression. If you're a Hebrew living under that oppression, you knew that there was absolutely nothing you could do to change things. There's no hope. There's no change. There's nobody going to show up to fix it. Imagine how those mothers who watched their sons being killed at birth, and the next day they had to go back to work for Pharaoh and back to work for Egypt. Imagine how they were changed. I want you to think about it. Oppression changes the oppressed. You give birth to a child that is immediately killed before you. You are changed and you go back to work. You go back to building. He said that he was so mad at the midwives that what he said is, now even if they make it and the midwives don't kill them at birth, if you find them, throw them into the river and watch them drown. These women are changed. Imagine what a, what a Hebrew father felt like because he was unable to protect his family. Imagine what it was like for him to have to go back to work and then come home and look at his wife in the eyes and look at his daughters in the eyes and say, today your brother was thrown into a river because we are oppressed. It's not a small thing. These people are changed. The change that oppressed people experience is so deep, it's like a change to their DNA, to their brain function, and to their emotional abilities. It's not a short-term change. It's not a momentary change. They are forever changed. Their heart doesn't work the same anymore. Their minds don't work the same anymore. Oppression is much more, in my opinion, about the oppressed than it is about the oppressor. Leads me to number two this morning, which I think often follows oppression. Number two is possession. Webster says this is the definition of possession. Number one is the act of having or taking into control. Number two is something owned, occupied, or controlled. You have possession. And the last one, number three, is control or occupancy without regard to ownership. I like that one. Possession is about saying, look, I don't even own this, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> I have control. I have authority. doesn't matter what you do, what you say, what you think. I have possessed this. That's your phone. I take it. It's yours, but it's mine. I possess it. Right? I don't care who owns it. I hold it. What do they say? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> That's where these things come from, possession. I think people enduring oppression are extremely susceptible to possession. People enduring oppression are susceptible, extremely susceptible to possession. No matter how bad a person's life is, no matter how bad a person's experience, experiences are, their mind and their heart and their soul still belong to them. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Your mind is yours, your heart is yours, your soul is yours. They belong to you. Possession is about giving those things over or having those things taken over by another. Many of us know what it's like to give ourselves over to drugs, over to alcohol, over to lust and sexuality, 
and over to anger. Somebody say amen. amen. The Bible teaches us that these are not just things that we're giving ourselves over to. These are evil spirits that are taking possession of us. We're going to talk to the church this morning. <laughs> In the world, these are things that are a problem. These are issues that need to be dealt with. In the church, these are evil spirits and demons that are taking possession of something that belongs to us. That's what the Bible teaches us. I watched a terrible show that I don't think any of you guys should watch. It's called Hannibal. Um, and it's about Hannibal Lecter. He's a psychiatrist. And what he would do is he had this ability to get into people's heads, get into their minds, and actually force them to do horrible and horrific things to others and horrible and horrific things to themselves. Like mind control, possession. I thought about another movie. Many of you probably saw it back in, I think, the 90s. It was uh, called Fallen with Denzel Washington. Anybody remember that movie? That one you can watch, but it is kind of crazy. It was this idea of there was this demon that was going around, and it would go from person to person, right? And uh, same kind of thing. It would possess them, and then they would, he would use that body to, to hurt people, to do bad things, and then eventually to hurt themselves. And the idea is how the demon got from person to person was through these gateways of sin. If you had sin in your life, if you had unrighteousness, if you did any kind of things that were ungodly, there was like this open door and the spirit could jump from person to person, right? So these are movies, these are fictional characters, but the principle is actually biblical, right? Why? Because demons are real. <laughs> Possession is real. And sinfulness along with godlessness are the gateways that the enemy uses to possess. Okay? Sin is real. Demons are real. Possession is real. And when you have sin in your life and you have godlessness in your life, there is a gateway, there is an open door for the enemy, for demons, for possession. So when you have people with an already fallen sinful nature, the Bible teaches us that we all are born sinners. Like there's none righteous, right? When you have people who are already born with a sin nature and they find themselves enduring long periods of oppression, they often open themselves up to anything and anyone and any experience that they think can help them. See what I'm saying? I've already got a sin nature. I'm not a perfect person. I'm a kid. I want to do wrong. I want to lie. I want to do certain things. But then when you add oppression to that day after day, week after week, year after year, century after century, right? We will open ourselves up. We are susceptible now to possession because we say to ourselves, I'll take anything that makes me feel better. I'll smoke anything that makes me forget. I'll sleep with anybody that makes me feel loved. I'm open to possession because I'm tired of oppression. Man, that devil is good at what he does, isn't he? He ain't messing around. He's got a plan. And too often, when people get to that place, instead of running into and meeting a man of God or a woman of God, they run into the devil, and he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he says, just smoke this. Just try that. I can make you feel loved. You know what? Just, just hold on to your resources and invest into this, and I, I promise you, you'll make enough to where you can get out of this feeling of oppression. Oh, he's so slick. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience. It's not hypothetical. 
When we relinquish our hearts and our minds and our souls to anything but God, we quickly find ourselves possessed. We find ourselves at the mercy of these things and our lives don't get better. They somehow get worse, which we thought was impossible. When you're oppressed, you don't feel like there's, there's, it can't get any worse than this, so I'll try anything. And the next thing you know, you're at the mercy of these things. You can't stop even if you wanted to. And life got worse. You're like, how is that possible? Let's see. Possession. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Romans 1, 22. Speaking of me, speaking of you, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, they burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. I thought this was an important scripture to describe what possession really looks like. I I think we've all read that scripture before, heard it before, maybe heard a sermon about it, but I don't think that the first thing that came into our mind was possession. We usually think sinfulness and behavior, but I think it's possession. Verse 29 says, these people doing these things were being filled with all unrighteousness. That's possession. They're not just behaving a certain way. I was not just behaving a certain way. I was being filled with all unrighteousness. I was being possessed. Did not want to retain God in my mind, just like it says here. How many times did the passage, this passage say, so God gave them over to? God gave them up to? God gave them to? It's such a clear picture, like God wants to be there. You need to be with God. We need to have God inside of us. But we're saying, no, I'd rather do these other things. And God gives us to those other things and those other things possess us. It's possession. What is possession? Remember, it's about excluding God and giving your heart and your mind and your soul to someone else or to something else. This is Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Just one verse. Luke 22, verse 3. It says, then, everybody say then. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. This is possession. This isn't a bad decision. This isn't just that he was stealing money from the treasury. 
It just wasn't a momentary lapse. It's possession. He was walking with Jesus for three years, following Jesus, listening to the words of Jesus. And then he said, I no longer want Jesus to reign or to lead. I give myself over to the devil. And the devil didn't say, hey, I'm going to walk with you and we're going to do some things. He entered in and took possession. He now has his heart, mind, and soul. One of the things we know is that Judas did this on purpose and with full knowledge of who Jesus was, right? This wasn't an accident. He knew exactly who Jesus was and he knew exactly what he was doing. But let's remember, many people are possessed without thinking that they're betraying God. Most people who are possessed... They don't, they don't think that they're making a conscious decision to say, demons come in and God, get out. I know I didn't think that. I didn't even have a frame of mind or a concept of any of this kind of stuff. I was just, I thought I was just smoking something with some friends. <laughs> I thought I was just doing what young men do. But then when you get into the scriptures and you realize what's actually happening, one of the questions, not in my notes, and, and it might be off time right now, but one of the questions I have is, why the heck didn't anybody tell me? Where were all the Christians? Where were all the people that knew about demons and possession and knew what I was getting involved in? Instead of saying, hey man, do that on your own time or blah, 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 don't let your parents find out. There should have been some church folks. There should have been some Christian kids at school. There should have been a teacher or two. There should have been a family member. Hey, you're playing with, with fire. These are, this is demonic. This is not okay. Satan entered Judas. Many of us, though, had, had my experience and some of your experiences where we didn't know that we were making a decision of good and evil, God and the devil, righteousness and demon possession. Many of us are just looking for anything that offers relief from oppression. <laughs> and we find ourselves possessed. How many of us know good people and good friends? They're far from God, but they don't consider themselves bound. <laughs> they don't consider themselves oppressed. They don't consider themselves possessed, right? Like, I know a lot of good people that take good care of their families and, and do right by others and all that kind of good stuff. And they're good employees, all that kind of stuff. But there are certain things that are alive in their life that I know that's not just bad things, it's, it's possession. They've given over ownership. We don't like to call it that, and we don't like to look at it that way, but I think Christians need to start calling it that and looking at it that way. Amen. Let's look at some of those so-called good people. This is Matthew 17, 14. That didn't do it like Judas, like on purpose, and we can clearly see why, why Satan entered into Judas. This is Matthew 17, 14 says, When they had come to the multitude, a man came to Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Wow. This, this child initially doesn't appear to have, like, any kind of malintent. He's not like Judas. He's just a child who's suffering, right? No. 
The man comes to him and says, my son is hurting. He's epileptic. He's having seizures. He's thrown into the fire. He's thrown into the water. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, poor boy. He says, perverse generation. Remember that list from Romans about all that perversion and godlessness? That's the first thing he says is, you faithless and perverse generation. There's a problem here. And even though it looks like a normal person with a normal problem that they did not ask for, there is a problem that is deeper. And then what does Jesus do? He rebukes a demon that was possessing this child. Eventually, this demon was going to kill this child. You know why? Because that's what demons do. John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There was no happy ending going to come out of this. Leads me to number three. We've got oppression. Now we've opened ourselves up to possession. And what often happens to people who can't break free from possession, and they remain at the mercy of seizures, sex, drugs, alcohol, pride, anger, any of those things, if you remain at the mercy of those things running and ruling your life, even though we thought it couldn't get any worse, that situation often leads to depression. We thought it couldn't get worse than oppression. The promises of the things turned out to be lies. We recognize that now we're oppressed, or excuse me, possessed, we're worse off than we were before. We enter into depression. Webster says that depression is a mood disorder marked especially by sadness, inactivity, difficulty in thinking and concentration, a significant increase or decrease in appetite and time spent sleeping, feelings of dejection and hopelessness, and sometimes suicidal tendencies. Raise your hand if you've ever been depressed. Leave them up. Look around. Put your hands down. I wonder if anybody else in the room has ever got a call from somebody that had their hand up right now to talk to them about depression. Because that's how the enemy gets you, right? Oppress you, possess you, depress you, and then keep you from opening it up to anybody, knowing that all of us are going through the same things and experiencing the same things. And we stay silent, and then many of us die in silence. Dang, he's good at what he does. God's plan, I said it earlier, such a simple plan. He says, my answer is the church. <laughs> like, that's it. What I know of the church and what the world says the church is are two completely different things. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And then my ultimate plan is to go back to heaven and then send the church into the world. <laughs> and we're asleep. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Mark 5, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Then they came, Jesus and his disciples, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling amongst the tombs. 
and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. What does depression feel like? Depression feels like death. Depression feels like desiring death. And depression is real. I remember um, before experiencing depression for the first time, um, thinking that depression wasn't really real and that people were just like weak. But it is real. (laughs) And people are not weak. They're oppressed and they're possessed. And they're bound. And it's hard. Right now, in America and all over the world, we're seeing the numbers of people in depression skyrocket. I don't know if the numbers are skyrocketing or we're just getting more reports. It's kind of like the the percentages with coronavirus, right? The more people are getting tested, the more we find out actually have it, right? I think right now we're seeing the same thing with depression in our country and all over the world is that people are actually saying, this is how I feel. I'm depressed. Why is that happening right now? I think there's a lot of reasons. But one is I think many people are forced to see possession for what it is in a greater way than usual. Like people are, are away from friends, away from family. The environments where they used to do some of the things that they were doing and possessed by have completely changed, right? It's one thing to say like, oh, I like to go out or oh, I like to drink with friends or oh, I like to, to do whatever it is that we like to do. And now when you're not with friends and you're not going out and you're still bound by those things by yourself in your own home, hiding from your family, all of a sudden you realize, man, I think I'm possessed. And that's depressing. (laughs) In a greater way than usual, we are seeing the demons of oppression and possession clearly for what they are and what they're doing to us. It's freaking depressing. (laughs) I'm serious. If you turn on the news, if you get onto Facebook, what you see is the demonic oppression of people groups. What you see is... um, uh, possession of ourselves, our friends, our families, others, and it's depressing. We can't believe that this is really who we are. (laughs) And just like I said earlier about oppression, when you know that there's almost really nothing you can do about it, it's depressing. That's why some people would rather close their eyes and close their ears because we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it because then we have to deal with it. That's why the numbers are skyrocketing for depression. This man was possessed, but it led to extreme depression, right? The man in this story, he's possessed. He was living in a cemetery amongst the dead. And the scriptures tell us that he was crying out and cutting himself, trying to end his own life. But the demons are not satisfied with just death alone. They want to torment us for as long as possible. Right. It'd be one thing if you could say, like, the enemy just wants to come and he just wants to kill you as quickly as possible. But he doesn't want to kill you as quickly as possible. 
He wants to torment you for as long as possible. He wants that to flow into your children and flow into your spouses and flow into your friends. Right? This person is possessed, demon-possessed, and he wants death. He's living in a cemetery. He's cutting himself. It even said that others would try to bind him to keep him from doing the things that possessed people do, but it was too strong. The possession was too strong that he would break free of that and continue to rule this man's life. He comes screaming to Jesus, and I can see both of this. You've got the, the demon within the man, and then you've got the man himself, right? I can see both of them coming to Jesus and saying, leave me alone. Obviously, the demon is saying, don't judge me. I know who you are. I know that the judgment is coming, but now's not the time. Leave me alone. Let me continue to do what I'm doing. It's not my fault. It's his fault. He opened himself up to me. I didn't make him do that. So the demon tells Jesus, leave me alone. But also, can't you see the man who's depressed saying, you know what? I don't want to hear about you. I don't want to hear from you, God. I don't want to hear about you, God. I don't want to hear about church. I don't want to hear about forgiveness. How many of us were that person when we were oppressed and possessed and depressed? We don't want to hear anybody inviting us to church. We don't want to hear anybody breaking out their Bible to talk to us about scripture. Our friends right now that are going through these types of experiences, they don't want to hear scripture. They don't want to hear us inviting the church. They don't want to hear us talking about what Jesus can do for their life and in their life. That's what it means to be depressed. Depression is also a pressing down, right? A depression. Think of uh, when your kids are in school and they get that little clay thing and then they put their hand in it, they depress their handprint in it, right? That's how you end up seeing their hand is there's this pushing down, right? The depression leaves an impression. So even when their hand is removed, right? Many of us, even when we're no longer depressed, there still has been this impression upon our hearts and upon our minds. Just like oppression does something to the character, the DNA, the heart, and the mind of those who are oppressed. I remember feeling so far below the surface. I remember feeling so depressed in 2004 that I almost committed suicide. I told you earlier that I used to think that there's something wrong with these people. (laughs) They're so weak until it happens to you and then you're scared (laughs) and you realize that it's not about what you thought strength and weakness was about there is actually something spiritual going on when you feel or you have felt oppression when you see how it's being victorious over you when you realize that you're possessed and the things are now controlling you running your life and you can't stop even if you want to you enter this depression this pressing down and you think the only way out is death living in the cemetery. Sounds like a good place to be. At that point, we see full-grown sin. We've gone from oppression to possession to depression, and all that's left is for full-grown sin now to bring forth death. Is that what James said was going to happen? It's conceived, and then it grows, and then when it's full-grown, it brings forth death. That's all that's left now for many people, and many people fall susceptible to it. But those of us who know our word know that in many of the stories we looked at today, they didn't end in death. Instead of death, there was life. Instead of darkness, there was light. But how? How did that happen? We saw the progression. We see full-grown sin. James told us that it's going to bring forth death. 
What was the answer for each of the people or the people groups that we looked at so far? Why didn't it end in death? The answer and the how was an act of God. An act of God. For the enslaved Hebrews who were oppressed under the cruel power and authority of Egypt, God took the boldness of one man who was willing to protest and God began to break the bondage and do things that only God can do, like a miracle of parting the Red Sea so that they could escape and have victory from the oppression. They weren't going to get out of the oppression on their own. It took an act of God. Many people are frustrated with people protesting right now with BLM, Black Lives Matter signs. But I see Moses here with a LMPG sign saying, let my people go. <laughs> He's protesting. He's speaking truth to power, truth to authority. He's saying, look, Pharaoh, I know who you are. I know that you're the, most, the, uh, the strongest and the most powerful nation on earth, but these people are oppressed. Let my people go. One man protesting. God could have done it without the protest, but he did it after the protest. It takes an act of God for people to be released from oppression. But God expects his people to act. For the child who was possessed, Jesus rebuked the demon and then the child was set free. It could have happened another way. Jesus rebukes demons. He, rebu uh, he rebukes sickness as a demon in people's lives when he heals them. I was talking about this. I don't know if it was with the church or some of the men, some of the disciples. We were talking about prayer and praying for people and praying for healing. And one of the things I shared with them is that we have to, we, we have to pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. Amen. When we come up to people and we say, God, I just hope that you would heal them and I don't want to see them die and, and cancer so bad. And would you, would you help them, Lord God? And would you do a miracle? That's good. Our hearts are in the right place. But that's not actually what we see in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures is Jesus says, perverse and unfaithful generation. I rebuke this demon who is tormenting this person. I rebuke this demon of sickness that is tormenting this person. In the scriptures, we also see that Jesus himself says, hey, I didn't, I didn't heal everybody. Elijah didn't heal everybody. Some people still died of their sickness. Some people still died with leprosy. But those that he did heal, it was a rebuking of demons, not an asking for something to happen for health. So the answer for this child, right? We don't know all the details. What we know is that Jesus didn't say that this was accidental by him. This child was far from God. This child was possessed by a demon and Jesus rebuked the demon. And he made room for himself to come into that child's life. An act of God is what it took. For the man who was depressed, living in the cemetery, God cast out what is called a legion of demons. They said, our name is legion because we're many. There's another scripture I didn't, I didn't put into the message today, but it talks about if you, if you go through some of this process and these things are cast out of you, but you don't let Jesus in, the Bible says that your house of your heart and your mind and your soul is nice and clean, and then seven demons come in that are worse than the first. Because it's not just about getting bad things out, it's about getting the good one in. So he cast a legion of demons out of this man. He's set free. He no longer wants to sleep in the cemetery. He's no longer cutting himself and trying to kill himself. And he's actually, instead of running from God like he was in the beginning, saying, Jesus, get out of here. The end of that story says that he's saying, Jesus, let me come with you. Let me follow you. Why? Because of an act of God. 
God is against oppression. God is against possession. And God is against depression. And God will act. So that's it for full-grown sin. We're going to quickly look at full-grown men and full-grown women of God. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Don't be depressed. I'm sorry if I'm oppressing you this morning. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Everybody say, grow up. Grow up. Say, grow up. grow up. We are not children. Paul says it's okay when you're a child to think of a child, understand as a child, speak as a child, but at some point we got to grow up, put away childish things. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12, Hebrews 5 verse 12 says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Say, grow up! Grow up! So Paul and Corinthians and the writer of Hebrews that many think is Paul is saying the same thing like, listen... Stop acting like children. Grow up. Christians, not, not everybody in the world. He's saying Christians, grow up. He's saying you should be teaching others, but I got to teach you again the first things, the simple things, the gospel, salvation, care for others, given to the kingdom. I got to keep teaching you the first things when you should be teaching others deeper things. He says it won't just happen. You have to exercise these things. You have to use the things that I've taught you. And then you'll be able to discern good and evil. If you ain't reading and you ain't using and you ain't exercising, you don't understand the beginning things and you're not on solid food, how can you discern good and evil and then want to post something? And then want to combat something and then want to tear something down. And our hearts aren't even a place where we can't even see that people are being oppressed. We can't even see that our loved ones are possessed. We can't even see that we're sitting amongst people who are depressed. God's looking for full grown men and full-grown women of God. We have to be able to see and understand and combat sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. We have to pray for and prepare the oppressed for acts of God. We don't change their lives, right? We don't fix it. We don't save anybody. We don't set anybody free. But what we can do is pray to God. And what we can also do is prepare these people for acts of God. We have to pray for and prepare the possessed 
for acts of God. Knowing that we as Christians cannot be possessed, but we know that many others are. We can still be oppressed and even demonic oppression, right? My life belongs to Christ. He lives inside of me. This is his place where he reigns, which means I don't have to worry about demons coming into this place. It belongs to Christ. However, demons still want to oppress me and they still want to depress me every chance they get. We have to pray against that and we have to prepare ourselves and other people for acts of God. And we have to pray for and prepare the depressed for acts of God. So one was oppression, two was possession, three was depression. Number four is the press in. (laughs) The press in. This is my own definition. It's not Webster's, it's mine. The press in (laughs) is the act of the will with extreme determination to pursue and find God in the midst of oppression, possession, and or depression. Want to hear it again? wrote a song about like here here go (laughs) the pressing is the act of the will with extreme determination to pursue and find god in the midst of oppression possession and or depression what does the pressing look like for the hebrews to trust god in egypt is an amazing example of the pressing That scripture I read to you says that uh, a new Pharaoh came into power that didn't know Joseph. Before this Pharaoh, Joseph saved Egypt and he saved all of his people and he was exalted to the number two in the society. But that man didn't know, this new Pharaoh didn't really know who Joseph was and what the history of the Hebrews really meant to Egypt. So he came and they began to oppress them. And there was only 70 of them at that time that went into Egypt. Now it's been decades, right? And there's millions of them. And they all, most of only 70 knew what it was like to be free there. The rest of them were slaves their whole life from birth to death. To think that that group of people could still maintain faith in God under those circumstances, man, that is the pressing. That is finding God. Seeking God, finding God in the midst of oppression. That's amazing. For Jews to trust God and endure an attempted genocide at the hands of Nazi Germany is an amazing example of the present. Job's wife told him, curse God and die. When you're watching yourselves be sent into internment camps, when you're watching yourself be murdered and gassed, when you're seeing this happen on a daily basis and you're not just dying, it's that torment, remember? They're being starved to death. We've seen the images, we've seen the pictures. Imagine keeping your faith in God. That's depressing. That's in oppression. That's in depression. These people are depressed, they're not happy, but they're still singing these psalms. That's depressing. Not when things are good, when things are horrible. For African Americans to find and trust Jesus as they endured slavery and centuries of oppression is an amazing example of the pressing. How do you sing hymns as slaves? How do you watch your brothers and sisters be lynched and watch these people still go to their churches and you have your underground church at the same time? That's crazy. You know what it is? It's the pressing. There's something within men and women of God who are full grown that understand 
that it doesn't matter about the oppression, it doesn't matter about the depression, it doesn't matter about attempted possession. Our only hope is to press in. All of us have an individual story of the pressing, right? I've got the knife to my wrist. It's about to go down. Something happens. God shows up. I don't even know God yet, but I know his angels were looking after me. A few days later, I had to make a decision. I was same area, going crazy, depressed in a parking lot. And I pressed in. I said, God, I don't care if you're real. I need you. Each of us in this building, not only your salvation story, but since then, you've had moments where you had the choice to back off or to press in. None of us are batting a thousand, but many of us, we have pressed in. It's possible. But we need more of it. We need more for ourselves and we need more for those who are still lost in the devil's lies and in the devil's systems of oppression and possession. We're almost done. I'm reminded of Jacob. He wasn't always this way, but he became a liar. He became a thief. He caused his brother to want to kill him, right? And Jacob lost his whole family, his mother, his father, his home. And he finds himself traveling in hopelessness, in depression, right? And then we see an example of the pressing. This is that moment. Genesis 28, verse 11. So he's in that space that many of us have been in. It says, so he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. You're sleeping on a rock. Things ain't good. (laughs) Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And you in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke. Say woke. Woke. Say woke. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? It's none other than the house of God. And in this, the gate of heaven, Jacob arose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put at his head, set it as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Right. He took his pain. He took his depression. He took what got him to the place that he was in. And he says, "Nah, this is no longer going to be used for that. It's going to be used to glorify God because he met me in this place, right? And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. And Jacob made a vow saying, listen to the vow, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. (laughs) Anybody having to beg this brother to tithe? (laughs) But listen to what he's saying. He's, He's not out of depression yet. He's still in it. He's still in the worst place he's ever been in his life. But because he saw an act of God, a a dream, a vision, some hope for what the future could be like, he says, from this moment forward, I will press in. No matter if if things get better tomorrow or things get better in a year, if things get better in 10 years, it doesn't matter. I'm going to press in. It took a long time for Jacob to see what God had promised him. To have his own family, 
to be able to be back with the rest of his, his original family, to have healing between him and his brother. But how did it happen from the press in? We have to press in, acknowledge sin in our lives. We have to see it and acknowledge the sin in others and in our nation. And we have to be willing to keep fighting the good fight. We can't choose another path. There's no hope in pulling back. There's only more oppression there, more possession, and more depression there, and eventual death. Life is only found in the fight. That's what you read. When you read through the scriptures, people fought. They had to. What does the oppression lead to? It leads to repossession. Repossession. Many of us know about repossession because you've had a car repossessed. <laughs> you thought it was yours, and then it ain't no more. Right? So we've had oppression, we've had possession, we've had depression, and then we have this pressing in, the pressing, and if we're willing to do this, the pressing, what we find is we get repossession. The things that we, we handed over, the things that we lost, come back. Repossession is to regain possession of something, to take possession of something that had been bought from a buyer, but that buyer is in default on their payments or their installments, right? So the devil came and he's like, listen, I'll take your life. <laughs> here's some drugs. Here's some sex. Here's some lies. Here's some happiness, whatever you want it to be, right? But when we press in with God, we get to repossess those things. Devil, you're in default, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought at a price. You matter. You have value. Surrender our lives. Repossess our lives from the enemy. At least 10 times this week, I had to give my mind and my heart back to God. Not from the enemy. Right? My life doesn't belong to the enemy, but I tried to take my mind back. I tried to take my heart back at least 10 times this last week. And then I'm like, Lord, dang it. I know it's yours. Here. Repossess it. Uh, what I found in the church is it's not, a lot of times it's not the enemy that's taking things from us again. We're taking them back. All the things we said we were going to give God, our feelings and our anger and our pain, all of a sudden we've got it all back. <laughs> we want to blame the enemy, but it's me. So at least, like I said, at least 10 times, I'm like, Lord, this life is yours. That's why I love what we sang today, uh, came to my rescue. I called and you came. You answered. You came to my rescue, right? We keep calling, we have to keep giving our lives back, keep pressing in. Here's the surprising thing, every morning, God kept allowing me to repossess my marriage, to repossess my children, and to repossess my ministry. His mercy and grace is so amazing. Like, I feel like I've forfeited so many things so many times, right, that you expect to wake up and have nothing, and the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every day. I wake up and it's like, Dang it, I forfeited and I sold my marriage because of my behavior and my attitude and my anger and my pride. I sold my kids because I was not attentive and I wasn't focused and I wasn't leading and I wasn't praying and I wasn't reading with them. 
dang it, I forfeited my ministry because I haven't been thinking about the people. I haven't been thinking about the church. And then I wake up and God's like, here, repossess it. God, if you've never felt these things, if you've never felt what it's like, like to put something so valuable in jeopardy, most of us have this experience in our life where we forfeited things or we've jeopardized things. The most important things to us, we put them at risk. As a man of God, as a husband as a, as a, and as a father, it's the worst feeling to know that I'm jeopardizing something as precious as my marriage. I'm jeopardizing something as precious as my children and our future. But then when you wake up and you expect judgment and you expect terror and you, you expect death and destruction, and what you find is Jesus at the foot of your bed saying, here, here, I still choose you, man. I don't have another husband for her. I, I chose you. I know who I chose. I don't have another father for them. I don't have another pastor for this church. I know who I chose. Here, repossess it. Repossess it. If you've never felt that, God, that's what I'm praying for you. That you would see Jesus at the foot of your bed, compelling you to repossess things that you've jeopardized. Last one. Hopefully you're still with me. I know it's a little bit long this morning, but I ain't preached in two weeks. Get over it. <laughs> Make it up for lost time. The last one, we had oppression, then we had possession, then we had depression, then we had depression, then we had repossession, and the last one, number six, is succession. Succession. Webster's again says, Number one, the order in which or the conditions under which one person after another succeeds to a property or dignity or title or throne. Number two, succession is the act or process of one person's taking the place of another in the enjoyment of or liability for rights or duties or both. Right. So you, you succeed to the throne. The king was on the throne and then you replace that king. Or somebody had property and then there's a succession. They pass on and that, that becomes your property. I love how it said the, the joy, right? The enjoyment of something or the liability. Sometimes you succeed to something that you hoped or you didn't really want. People leave you debt instead of resources. Last week, Mary spoke about succession. She talked about faithful fathers, and she showed us how Elijah and Elisha, right? How when Elijah was taken up into heaven, Elisha took up Elisha's, or excuse me, Elijah's mantle, and he began to walk in that same power that Elijah had, right? Elijah lived with this power and this ability, and he was a prophet of God, and he was able to do certain things, and there was a succession. Elijah was taken to heaven. Elisha was there to witness it. He dropped his mantle on the ground. So Elisha picked up the mantle. He walks to the sea and he says, in the name of the Lord, and the sea parts for him the same way that it did for Elijah because there was a succession, this handing over, this passing on of this power. I wanted to finish with succession today because this is the legacy that I want to leave to my children. Amen. It's the legacy that I want to leave to every member of this church. A legacy of pressing in, a legacy of repossessing, and I want us to teach others to do the same. If we can do that, if we can have succession, we will overcome oppression, 
even when the cases where the oppressed are gassed or lynched, it's okay if we can have a succession of pressing in. Many died in those camps and many died in our country, but it doesn't mean that we can't still have victory and that many of them didn't have victory. There were people then who were pressing in and we need people now who are pressing in. If we can do this, we'll overcome possession. Even when our loved ones seem to be so addicted that there seems to be no chance. I remember being the one that people said there's no chance. Many of you were the one that people said there's no chance. Many of you know somebody right now that you're thinking about and if you're honest, you're like, man, there's no chance. <laughs> but there is a chance. How? Succession. If we continue to press in, we will see some of those people that there was no chance for come to life. And we'll overcome depression as well. We can do it, our kids can do it, their kids can do it in succession. Last, last portions of scripture, Matthew 16, 19, this is Jesus. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is succession. Jesus is about to go back to heaven and he doesn't say, that's it, I'm out. He says, it's not just about me. I'm going to pass this on to you. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Not just so that you can enter in. He says, if you bind something on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. If you lose something on earth, it'll be loosed in heaven. That's succession. His power, his ability, his mission is being passed on. When Jesus was on earth, whatever he accomplished on earth, it happened in heaven. When Jesus was in heaven and he said, let there be light, it accomplished on earth. He's saying, that's what I left for my disciples. That's what I left for my apostles. And then he says, it's not just for them. I left that for the church and all those who would come after him. Do you understand this morning, if you're sitting here, if you're listening, whatever it is, that you have the keys to the kingdom? That you can bind things here on earth that will be bound in heaven and you can loose things here on earth that will be loosed in heaven? because of succession? Do we understand that we're part of the family of God, that these things are inheritance and been passed on to us? Last one, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, Not just my direct successors, my disciples, my apostles. He says, but I want you to baptize ones, make disciples, and I want them to baptize ones and make disciples. I want that to go on and on. It is a succession of the power and the presence and the love of God. That's the legacy. To be successors. To keep passing it on. To not stop the fight. Some people will sacrifice justice for peace. And others will say, no justice, no peace. You can sacrifice justice for your own personal and private peace. But it's not the peace you really want. It's not the peace that Jesus showed us how to pursue. We have to be willing like Jesus to say, no justice, no peace. If I have to die for it, I'll die for it. That's how love comes into the world. That's how change and transformation, forgiveness and freedom from oppression, freedom from possession and freedom from depression comes about. Let's pray. Thank you guys for enduring. Thank you for listening. And now we're going to pray quickly um, a couple of things and give everybody an opportunity to respond. One of the things I love about God is that he expects us to respond. He said to the rich young ruler,
to keep the commandments and he said I keep them and then he told him okay well then sell everything and follow me and that was his moment of okay now I really have to respond to what Jesus is asking me to do and in that case um, the rich young ruler decided that he didn't want to respond with yes I'll follow you and he went his own way other times in the scriptures we see where Jesus would walk up to one of those who would become his disciples and they were fishing, living their lives, doing what they, what they knew to do. And he would say, follow me. And it says that they left their parents, their families, their boats and their nets in that moment. They responded and they followed Jesus. I think every day some decisions are big and some decisions are small, but God is always giving us a chance to respond. Every service we give a chance to respond. Why? We know what the scriptures tell us is that God is at work. Sometimes we're, we're preaching a message on oppression or depression and, and God is preaching a message to a heart or to a mind about forgiveness. We never know exactly what he's doing because his ways are not our ways. He's far above what we could think. So we always want to give you that opportunity. So everyone who's here, why don't we stand We'll start that response, like a physical response as we stand. If you're home, if you're listening, if you're watching, would you do the same thing? Don't be afraid, don't be embarrassed. Just that physical response of, of standing is saying that you are capable of hearing, you are capable of responding, you are capable of reacting to the word that's going forth. And then we're gonna give you a couple opportunities. If any of them minister to you, just respond. You can come to the altar, you can open your heart, whatever you might do. The first is for salvation. Salvation is ultimately about possession. <laughs> Here's what it comes down to. Who has control of your life? If hearing this message today or maybe something that you've been dealing with for a while and you realize that control in your life is demonic, then you need to give your life to Jesus. There's no hope. There's no healing. There's no like forgiveness. There's no getting better and getting over addiction. There's no none of that. It's not just bad things or, or bad decisions. It is demonic. It is possession. It is the enemy slowly killing you. But today you have an opportunity to say, I want to give my life to Jesus. If you're listening and you might say, you know what? I don't think that it's demonic. I don't think that I have any of those things. But you could honestly say that you have control over your life. You're making every decision. You're deciding what's right and what's wrong and which way to go and which way not to go. Then you still need to give your life to Jesus. He has to have control. He has to have reign in your heart, in your mind and in your soul. Otherwise, as the scriptures told us today, he will give you over to yourself. He will give you up to the demonic. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us so much to give us what we desire. If that's you, you're here in this place, would you respond by saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, just raising your hand so that I can see you and I can pray for you? You want him to have soul control? Oh, I like that, soul control. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, I'm going to believe then that everyone here is saved. And if not, that God will continue to work. For the rest of you here, the, the response, the opportunity to respond is for the call to press in. If you want prayer, 
and you want to pray for those who need to seek and find God in oppression and in depression, you can stand on their behalf as we open the altars and you can begin to pray. You can begin to be an activist, actively being used by God to prepare people for an act of God. But I also want to pray for those of you who would say, you want to do better at pressing in for yourself. Your own oppression, your own possession, your own depression. So those are the two prayers. You can come to stand in the gap and to be used for others, but you can also come and say, Lord, I need to press in for me. I need to not back up. There's no, there's no peace without justice, Lord God. I don't want to be on the sideline in my own life. I don't want to be on the sideline in others' life. The enemy has a plan. He is oppressing people. He is possessing people. He is depressing people. And I want to be in that fight. I want to be moved by your spirit, Lord. I want to see it when it's happening to me and rebel against it. I want to see it when it's happening to others and rebel against it. I want to be the church, Lord. You said that your plan for the world is the church. I want to be part of that succession. I want to use the keys that you've given me to the kingdom to bind certain things and to loose other things. If that's you, would you come to the altar? Would you come? Would you respond? Would you take up your post? Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. We won't sacrifice justice for our own peace. Hallelujah, Lord. After we pray, we're going to open for communion, and you guys are, are free to have communion and, and free to, uh, 